Hey everyone, I'm Portia Flowers. Hey, and I'm Cynthia Dorsey. And this is Young, Black, and Brave. Young, Black, and Brave is a new podcast, but most importantly, it's a space where we can critically review cinema and discuss the representation of Black women in film. Black women, of course, have had a place in the film industry for some time now, but we want to take a look at it and talk about what that means. When stories are being told, who's included in the storytelling process? Who is centered, who is supporting, and who is erased? These are important conversations to have, particularly as Black women ourselves. We should be able to critique the media that is reflected back to us, and we're gonna try to do just that. It's a new year, new decade, new podcast. We are young, black, and brave. There are a lot of important shifts happening for women in the film industry, and black women should be at the center of these shifts, paid equally and represented authentically. So thank you, Portia, for including me in this discussion. Thank you. Hey, everybody. We are back with episode 10 of Young, Black, and Brave. Hey, Portia. Hey, Sophia. How you doing? I'm good. We are still yet in quarantine. Have you noticed anything crazy happening in the world that's super funny for our listeners? I mean, you know... It's a it's a day by day thing. It's, there's always something you 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 keep your eyes on alert a little bit. If you look on social media long enough, you find something wild running across <laughs> the screen. But uh, last night, I'm scrolling through uh, because I think maybe a week ago or less than a week ago, um, Swiss Beats was trying to organize a battle. You know, they've they've been battling on Instagram mm-hmm. um, with these different artists and producers, and so. Uh, I guess Swiss Beat was going to arrange for a battle between Babyface and Teddy Riley. Yeah. Which would have been amazing. And people were getting ready. And I think at the last minute it got canceled. And it wasn't really clear why. I I think some people said it might might have been on Teddy Riley's end and questions about, you know, what the rules were, whatever. I don't know. Um. And so that was that. And then last night, I see some announcement from Babyface. He put out a statement. <laughs> Girl. And I was just like, what? The so iOS first, press release is what they call them. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Girl. I mean, and it was damn packed. So at first he said, you know, thanks for the well wishes for my birthday. I forgot what year he turned, but he just had a birthday. Then he announced that both he and his entire family came down with Corona. They they tested positive with uh, COVID-19, which is terrifying. Yeah. But then he followed that by saying, you know, um, they went through it, they tested again, and they are now negative. They, they were able to fully recover. Um, so that's a blessing. And then uh, in the very next sentence, he was like, yeah, so, you know, we're going to do this Teddy Riley versus Babyface uh, <laughs> battle next weekend. Ladies, get your dresses, get your candles, oh get, your, get your dancing shoes on because it's going to go down. And I was just, 
I, it was an emotional roller coaster. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what are we doing? Oh my 2020 God. is a doozy. It really is. It's, it's supposed to be perfect, perfect vision, okay? Right. 2020. <laughs> what is happening? Oh my gosh, that's too cr- I feel like when celebrities come forth and say they have it, and they're coming forth having like been, I guess, cured, you know, and they just seem fine. And I just wonder like how they're getting all of their tests and all, like right. all of this access that every day ordinary people do not have. And I know it's a money thing, but it just seems awfully unfair. It's interesting, you know, of course, in the comment section, um, one of the first things people was like, you know, all I saw was that Babyface had access to two tests. Mm-hmm. How that happened? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. he had a test at the beginning saying positive and then at the end saying negative for him and his family. His whole so family. How, how you do that? You know, I was asking those questions when um, it first hit the NBA and we were hearing all about these different NBA players testing positive and I'm like well, how y'all know this how yes. did the NBA get access to all these tests and regular folks can't so you know it, it's frustrating it's frustrating um, you know especially when we keep hearing stories about how many more people are being diagnosed with COVID-19 and you know how many people are dying of COVID-19 and I really just want to just be like, we need to add an asterisk next to it. Mm-hmm. We actually don't know how many people. These are just people who have been tested, but tests have not been available to everyone. And there's people who are dying before they even get the results yeah. of their test. Yep. So how much is that being matched up? How, how true are these numbers? If we were to have tests available, rapid tests available for everyone when they needed it, uh, those numbers would probably go astronomically high and they're already bad. So it's, you know, it's just a bit surreal and the information that we're getting, we really have to think critically about it, um, which comes with its own set of complications because it's just a very overwhelming, very serious, concerning uh, situation that, you know, makes you want to kind of turn it off in a way mm-hmm. you you want to be aware you want to be informed you want to think critically about it but at the same time you don't want to overwhelm yourself um so I I kind of find myself going back and forth between being very um you know very very attuned and also just unplugging and doing the stupidest thing right if we if, let's make a young black and brave list of what we want to tell black folks to stop doing during Corona. One, I want to add to the list. Yes, we all have our masks and you guys, I see you guys out with your gloves, but don't eat your Doritos with your gloves on oh. outside in the universe. Wait till you get oh back inside. <laughs> Wash your hands, shower, first of all, because you've been out shopping, shower, put on some fresh clothes, wash your hands, then eat your Doritos. Right. No, you got to, you got to be careful. You got to think, you got to think, just, just take a minute, 
mistake before you do. <laughs> Don't do that. That's nasty. <laughs> Everything that you touch with your gloves, like your glove still has that. And you're going to touch stuff and then put it in your mouth or touch, you touch your face. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can we put? I heard that Chicago can track their um, original corona cases back to family gatherings. I know you uh-huh. miss mama and pa and, and, and your cousins and your aunties, but we got to stay separated for a while, guys. Don't have that cookout that you want to have. <laughs> Try not yeah. to go over to your mom's house and stay for long periods of time. Stay where you're at. Check in virtually and make sure mom is okay. But if you're going to go stay with mom, stay with her. Don't keep coming and going because you're bringing all of those (coughs) bacteria and germs and everything. You don't know what you're bringing into people's households. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I was reading um, some people just kind of venting about their roommates. Mm-hmm. And how they're frustrated with their roommates for not adhering to, um, you know, quarantine. They're telling everybody to stay home. And then there's folks who are just like, whatever, I don't care. Right. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Or else they'll go and they're just like, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's just a couple of us friends. Like, just because you know the people does not mean that, that you can't get sick. Like, I don't understand what you don't understand about the concept mm-hmm. of staying home and about the concept of getting sick. People pass germs all the time. Yes. And it's not because they're nasty. It's not yes. because they're doing something wrong. It's just, this is just the way that it ha- that diseases happen. Communicable diseases happen, mm-hmm. um, you know, through our social interactions. So you really have to limit your social interactions and you have to be, it's just, be responsible and be community minded. Mm-hmm. Like I think we're so used to um, being so individually minded. I do what I want to do. Um, you know, if you don't like it tough. Right. And now people really have to, have to uh, shift their thinking and, and really understand what was true all along is that we're all a community. We're all members of the community, mm-hmm. whether you want to be in this community or not, mm-hmm. we actually are operating in this same community. And we have a responsibility to at least try yeah. to not, not harm the community. Maybe you don't feel like making it better, but at least don't actively harm it. Right. So, yeah. Right. I, I really wish that people would just kind of be a little less selfish and just think a little bit harder. And, you know, then this will be um, less stressful. I mean, if we all just, you know, pull together and do what we're supposed to do, I think this quarantine will last a lot, you know, short, will last for a shorter amount of time. But if we're all still acting like everything is honky-dory and just keep going on about our lives, we're going to be in the house for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I would also like to advocate, you know, having some sort of decorum on social media. Yes, we are living in a time where things are scary and you want to post the death toll every day. But some people can't, we can't, that input, what we're reading on social media and what we're hearing on the news affects our mental state, whether you want to admit it or not. 
And mm-hmm. let's just start po- like reversing that. Like post some success stories. I read a story about a mother of five being released from the hospital and the whole hospital cheered for her as they pushed her out in the wheelchair. Like that's the type of stuff I want to read. I don't want, I know what the, I know what is happening with the death toll. I don't want to see that all the time. So I would advocate for everybody just to start posting some Fun stuff, some things that are uplifting and not necessarily stuff that's going to continue to keep us in fear. Yeah, yeah. We have to be more intentional about about what we put out there, um, you know, in all aspects. A lot of times uh, people just, just, just throw stuff out there. It's just stream of consciousness. It's whatever comes to mind. That's just what I'm going to say. Right. You just get, you know, real time thoughts and not everybody don't need to hear every thought that, that runs through your mind. Um, and you just, and try to be a little more responsible with what you put out there, especially when it comes to factual information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't just put out stuff that you think you heard. You thought you heard that, you know, 5g might be causing coronavirus. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh <laughs> if you really need to tell people something, tell them to wash their hands and go. That's it. That's all you need to do. If you want to, if you want to send out information, you know, repost stuff that comes from the CDC or the World Health Organization, and you know, just, just help people get the information that they need, and that's it. Yes. And also, we probably all need to kind of take a, a bit of a break from social media in general yeah. because there is such a thing as too much information. Even if it's all correct, mm-hmm. it can be very overwhelming and, you know, and counterproductive. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, you know, I think it's important to have that balance and, and to find some positive story so that you're not, you know, feeding your mind with a whole bunch of doom and gloom and fear. Um, you know, this, this is not the time for fear. This is the time to be brave and to, and to do your part and to get the information that you need and, you know, and then try your best to do well by yourself and, and by others. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's, there's still hope, of course. And, you know, the vast majority of people who, uh, contract this disease are not dying. Yes. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to remember that because it's such a scary disease and you definitely don't want to downplay it. Um, but we do have to remember that most people are not dying. Um, so, you know, if hopefully that, that will help somebody, mm-hmm. um, if they're feeling, you know, overwhelmingly scared. Um, but you know, you just try to, uh, there are things that we can do and we do have some level of control. Yep. Um, and, and so all we have to do is just is practice that. All right, y'all. Listen to the Young Black and Brave list. Please. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> it for my side of the list. you have anything to add? No, not really. You know, I, so uh, I could I could go on and on, but just a little bit about this uh, issue about Black people and COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some stories that are, that are being published now that are talking about um, the uh, disparities in the death rate 
among um, uh, black people with COVID-19 yeah. uh, versus others. And it's, it's really affecting us. Um, and what, you know, these, again, this is, this is very fast moving and this is new information that's coming out. But what researchers are suspecting is that <coughs> it is related to many of the um, diseases that we uh, tend to um, be more predisposed to. And by predisposed, I don't necessarily mean genetically predisposed, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, there's social determinants that, um, that are affecting, um, you know, the, the likelihood of us acquiring a disease compared to others. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, factors such as income, factors such as geography, factors such as education, factors such as racism, which people don't like to talk about, but racism is everywhere and racism shows up in health outcomes as well. Um, so, you know, there's, it's no wonder that, that black people tend to have, um, you know, higher rates of, uh, cardiovascular disease or diabetes, or, you know, when I was, um, heavily involved in, in osteoarthritis research, we found that, um, that there were factors such as obesity and cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes uh, that were associated with osteoarthritis. And you can't, you don't, you know, osteoarthritis is not a deadly disease, but it can certainly affect your mobility mm-hmm. and your quality of life. Um, and so all these things play a role and, um, and are contributors to why black people are seeming to um, be more likely to die from COVID-19. Um, so we all have to be um, very vigilant in trying to prevent um, the contraction of the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, because once we get it, it's, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's really a major, major thing. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there, not to scare anybody, but to really just have us all be informed and to also emphasize the, the um, systems that are at play right. and racism that is at play. Um, it's, you know, a lot of times when we talk about racial disparities of health, um, it ends up becoming um, almost uh, uh, framed as though we are acting in, in detrimental ways to ourselves. You know, we're, we have deviant behavior. It's the reason why we we're sick is because we won't put down a fried chicken or the reason why we're sick is because we won't stop drinking or we won't stop smoking. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not necessarily it. And if, and there are factors behind why we may have certain eating behavior yeah. or eating habits, or we may have some certain exercise habits not because we're inherently lazy. It's not because we have some type of death wish or something. It's not because we're too stupid to, you know, eat healthier. There are factors at play that prevent us from eating healthier, that prevent us from having access to the healthcare that other people have, yeah. that prevent us from getting, um, from, from being heard when we say that we're sick, when we say that we're in pain. So, yeah, one of my yeah. favorite preachers, and I have to really shout out um, a lot of the churches for still having virtual service. 
um, for those of us who, you know, like to go to church or get like an uplifting word to start our week with. Um, and, but one of my favorite preachers, uh, Reverend Frederick Haynes, uh, Friendship West Baptist Church in um, Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, he was talking about that a couple of weeks ago and just saying, you know, we have people during COVID who were on food stamps and they can't get access to their food stamps or people can't get access to their unemployment checks. Um, black people in, in droves, you know, we can't, they can't access the basic, their basic fundamental rights. So therefore, when you're sick, you can't get to the doctor to get the treatment you need, or you're mm-hmm. going to a hospital that's already full of people and they can't service you because they don't have enough beds or enough ventilators. And we know that's we know that that's an issue um, throughout our entire country right now. And you live in one section of town. There could be no ventilators, and you can't get to the other section of town. The doctors don't advocate for you because you live in one section of town and your skin color is different. And so Mm -hmm. it's like all of these um, disparities and, and, you know, things that we cannot overcome as a people because of these systematic barriers. Mm -hmm. And I just, I feel, I just really feel for our community in this time because our fight looks different. And whether people want to admit it or not, it looks different. Our numbers are high. I know at one point people said that, you know, it wouldn't affect but black people. But it is affecting wow. us because we don't have the access to get the same treatment that um, whites get. And we also don't have the respect of the country. Wow. And and that is an alarming and hurtful thing to know that I as a black woman could be sick and I end up at the same hospital as a white woman and they would see the white woman over me. That is a reality that we would have to face. So, scary. yeah, it's, it's very scary. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, <laughs> On that note, on that <laughs> nice light note, <laughs> but you know, just be aware and don't just don't be stupid and and pay attention and and recognize, you know, there's a lot of lessons potentially that we could come away with once this is said and done. Because I do believe that we will come out on the other side of yeah, this. Yeah. But you know, if if nothing else, uh, this should definitely be an eye-opener for us when it comes to um, systems, when it comes to structures, um, you know, system, um, systemic racism and and uh, public health and the responsibilities that public officials have for the public uh, when it comes to health and, you know, being aware of what, what policies are in place in your local governments, in your state governments, in your federal governments, what responsibilities do they have? What are the things that you need to be aware of and that you should demand from candidates um, when they ask for your vote? 
and the things that you should demand from your representatives once they are in place mm-hmm. um, and once they've won those elections. Um, you know, we all need to be more engaged citizens and um, informed voters and demand a better system than what we have right now. Yeah. And don't let this distract you that we are amongst an election season. Like this can be a distraction and you might not show up when we can be free. We might not show up at the polls. I, I, I'm enraged at what they're doing in Wisconsin right now. The um, mm-hmm. Wisconsin State um, Supreme Court voted for them to still have their primaries in the midst of, you know, the COVID-19. And so people aren't going to go to the polls. Don't get distracted by what's going on right now when it's time and we can walk out into the world healthy and it's time to vote, vote. You have to vote because the way in which our leaders are responding right now speaks volumes to the care they have about their constituents. Mm -hmm. What their priorities are. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right, guys. Yeah, that's a whole nother topic. Boy. (laughs) Today's film we will be reviewing is the 2019 drama Clemency, directed by Chinonye Chukwu. Years of carrying out death row executions have taken a toll on prison warden Bernadine Williams, played by Alfre Woodard. As she prepares to execute another inmate, Bernadine must confront the psychological and emotional demons her job creates, ultimately connecting her to the man she is sanctioned to kill. Yes, so this film is um, written and directed by Chinonye Chukwu. Um, she is a Nigerian American filmmaker, and this is actually her second feature film. Um, her first was called Alaska Land, and her next film will actually be um, called A Taste of Power. And it's based on uh, Elaine Brown's autobiography. Yes. Um, and Elaine Brown is the first woman to have led the Black Panther Party. Yes. So this is going to be, I, I can't wait for us to to see this film, for, for more people to learn about Elaine Brown yes. and the Black Panther Party, and for us to potentially um, review it on our, on our show. So that's something to look forward to. Um, the cast includes several really powerhouse um, actors and actresses um, starring uh, Alfre Woodard, mm-hmm. who plays the role of the warden. Um, her name is Bernadine Williams. Alfre Woodard, just, I mean, a whole show could be done about her, but we're just going to keep it really brief. Mm-hmm. This is a living legend. If you don't know, go look her up. Go have your own little film festival. Watch several of her films, her TV shows. She's done a lot for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's she's not stopping. She uh, is the winner of one Golden Globe. She's got 18 nominations Mm -hmm. from the Golden Globe. Sorry, not 18 nominations. She's got 18 Emmy nominations. 
um, four Emmy wins, uh, three Screen Actors Guild Awards, eight NAACP Image Awards with 22 nominations. Mm. Huge. And she's an Oscar-nominated actress um, as well as a Grammy nominee. Yes. I, I mean, just amazing. I don't know if she does much um, stage work, but if she did, she'd probably get a Tony Award in there too somewhere. <laughs> Bound yeah. to happen. Um, she also, so yeah. like as a um, an older actress, seems to have a, a stretch. Like she can play younger characters um, as well. And so I think that that's phenomenal too. Yeah, she's 67 years old. Mm -hmm. I just looked that up. She is 67 years old. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, and uh, they talk about this in Hollywood a lot, the, the lack of roles for women in general um, and the lack of roles for black women, but also the lack of roles for older women. Right. It's really challenging, especially the lack of, of leading roles for older women. Um, and you can only imagine how, how much more difficult that is for a black woman. Um, so for Alfre Woodard to be in her late sixties and here she is starring in, in this, uh, in this film, it's, it's a huge accomplishment and it's a huge testament to her and her abilities. Um, so yes, yeah, I just wanted to make sure we give proper due to Miss Alfre Woodard. Yes. Um, also joining her in this film, we have Wendell Pierce, who plays her husband, Jonathan. Mr. And, Wendell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and he's known for a lot of things, probably primarily known for his roles in Treme and The Wire. Yes. Um, I love And I would say, yeah, and I would say probably... Um, in my opinion, his most iconic role was in uh, Waiting to Exhale <laughs> <laughs> as a corny dude that was with Leela Rochon. And then I think he got too big for his britches. Uh -huh. And he had to get kicked to the curb. Uh -huh. um, but yes, he, he's out here doing this daggone thing. Um, and he puts in a really great performance here. Also in this cast, we have Aldous Hodge playing the role of Anthony Woods, who is, um, I guess you could say the central uh, figure in this movie besides uh, uh, the warden, Bernadine Williams. Mm -hmm. um, he is the prisoner who is set for execution um, and the one that kind of uh, Alfred Woodard's character has to really contemplate um, and has a little bit of a crisis over his uh, his upcoming execution. Now, Aldous Hodge, he is best known for his roles in Hidden Figures, Underground, and Brian Banks. And I think he was recently in another film, Invisible Man. Yeah, I think that so. That just came out yeah. not too long ago. Yeah. yeah. With Elizabeth Moss? Yes. Um, I don't know too much about him. All I know is that man is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, 
So the character of Anthony Woods has a lawyer. His name is Marty Lumetta. Mm-hmm. And he is played by the actor Richard Schiff. He is currently starring in the television show The Good Doctor. Um, but he's probably best known for his Emmy winning role as Toby Ziegler in The West Wing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have not seen The West Wing, although that's also on my list of things to watch. I heard that's really great. Me too. I haven't heard it. I haven't seen it either, but I've definitely heard great things. Yeah. And I have not gotten around to watching The Good Doctor, but my mom has. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) my mom says it's great. So. so now we have the character of Yvette played by Danielle Brooks. Yvette is uh, Jonathan Williams' um, ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And we'll find out a little bit more about her uh, place in his life. Anthony Woods' um, ex-girlfriend. Anthony Woods' ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, so she's played by Danielle Brooks, who is best known for her role as Tasty on Orange is the New Black, for which she won a Screen Actors Guild Award. Um, She's also been nominated for a Tony Award in the category of Best Featured Actress in a Musical for her role as Sophia Mm -hmm. in The Color Purple. Mm -hmm. Quite accomplished. And, you know, I knew that she was a trained actress. Um, I forgot what, I don't know if she went to Juilliard or somewhere. She went to some prestigious uh, uh, school for acting um, but I didn't realize how amazing she was until I saw her in Much Ado About Nothing um, on PBS mm-hmm. I need so, to see they, that it was great I'm not you know <sighs> Shakespeare is a little tough for me <laughs> <laughs> Shakespeare is a little tough for me you know it's a challenge but um, I, I was fascinated because this was an all-black production. Mm-hmm. All of the characters were played by black actors and actresses. And she had the starring role. And I was just, I was amazed by her ability to, you know, say all of those words. Uh, you know, as we know, Shakespeare, it's not modern language, so it can be a little challenging. But uh she did it, and they were—they found a way to modernize it while still, you know, staying true to the original text or the original dialogue. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I, I sincerely um, encourage everyone to watch that particular production. Right. Um, you can find it on PBS. I think you might even be able to find it for free, like on PBS.com or .org. I'm going to look for it for sure. She did. Yeah. I I just hit my, you know, turned to our trusty friend Google, and she did go to Juilliard. So you were absolutely right. She graduated in 2011. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Um, okay. Also in the cast, we have LaMonica Garrett playing Logan Cartwright. Uh, Michael O'Neill playing Chaplin Kendrick. Mm-hmm. Michelle uh, Bonilla playing Sonia. Richard Gunn playing Thomas Morgan. Alex Castillo playing Victor Jimenez, which we see, we, who we see at the very beginning of the film. He is uh, a in, an inmate who is about to face execution. Mm-hmm. And we have Mrs. Jimenez, his mother, played by Alma Martinez. And rounding out the cast, we have the characters of Mr. and Mrs. Colin, um, played by Dennis Haskins and Bernie Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, those names may or may not sound familiar, but if I said <laughs> uh, Mr. Belding <laughs> and Bye, you might recognize them. <laughs> so Dennis Haskins played Mr. Belding on Saved by the Bell. Uh-huh. And Bernie Watson played uh, by, better known as Will's mother, on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yes. Yes, so very recognizable. Um, You know, their their biggest roles uh, are probably, you know, like I said, those sitcoms. So it was very interesting to see uh, these two actors who are most known for their comedic uh, abilities to, to be in such a dramatic film. Um, Mr. Uh, sorry, uh, Bernie Watson, I just want to mention, um, very accomplished actress. She has two daytime Emmys for her role as Stella Henry on General Hospital. Mm -hmm. And she currently stars on Bob Hart's Abishola on CBS. Um, and like I said, they play the characters, Mr. and Mrs. Collins. Um, they are the parents of the young man that um, Anthony Woods was accused of and convicted of uh, murdering. And so uh, their their presence in this film um, becomes quite uh, significant later on. So now we'll move on to a few fun facts before we get into the meat of this film. Okay. So uh, Clemency earned the dramatic grand prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 2019, making Chinonye Chukwu the very first black woman to do so. Yes. Huge accomplishment. I love that. Yes. Um, Clemency also earned seven Black Reel Award nominations, including acting nominations for Alfred Woodard and Aldous Hodge Mm -hmm. and writing and directing nominations for Chinonye Chukwu. Um, this film also earned three NAACP Image Award nominations earlier this year, um, which include Outstanding Actress for a Motion Picture for Alfre Woodard, Outstanding Writing in a Motion Picture for Chinonye Chukwu, yes. and Outstanding Independent Motion Picture. Wow. That's awesome. Yes. Um, and finally, uh, this film was actually inspired by uh, the execution of Troy Davis in 2011. And we'll get into that a little bit more later on. But, um, you know, some people may remember uh, Troy Davis. 
he was a black man who was convicted of um, killing a police officer in Georgia. Um, he was sentenced to death in 1991. Mm-hmm. And uh, 20 years later, in 2011, um, the state of Georgia executed him. But during those 20 years, um, Troy Davis maintained his, his innocence. Um, and so as we get into the film, you'll see some of the parallels between his, his life and his story and um, the character of Anthony Woods, who also maintains his innocence throughout the film. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, and it doesn't seem like as the years go on, it doesn't seem like these um, convictions of black men are letting up at all. Our judicial system is just not budging in that at all. Um, I am grateful, though, that a lot of states have, you know, gone against the and spoken out against the death penalty and don't have them in their state. But there are a lot of people serving time who are innocent or whose convictions don't have enough evidence like they shouldn't even be in prison. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah. And I find it interesting mm-hmm. that, you know, even in this time we have the movie clemency and just mercy both coming out in right. 2019, um, talking about the same thing, um, black men who are, wrongfully convicted of crimes and um, sentenced to death and and what are the, the consequences of that? Just mercy, you know, from the lawyer's perspective, um, defense lawyer's perspective, trying to free this black man and then you have in clemency the, the perspective of um, the warden um, who is responsible for carrying out the death of this black man. Right. Um, so yeah, looking at it from, from both sides and, you know, it's not, uh, you know, there, there is some perspective from the, the, um, inmates, there is some, um, of the inmates perspective in, in each film, but it's also very interesting how the, the main focus is on, um, the individuals that they're interacting with. Mm-hmm. lawyer for just mercy and the warden for clemency right. and the toll that 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 the judicial system takes on them yes yes so none of us are able you know it affects all of us clearly it affects the, the people who are uh convicted and, and their lives are at stake but it affects all of us right. um you can't divorce yourself from it right okay so the film opens up with um, Bernadine Williams, the warden, played by Alfre Woodard, mm-hmm. um, and we see her preparing for an execution um, at the execution of Victor Jimenez. Um, we see her meeting with his mother, Miss Jimenez, and she is hopeful that her son has a stay of execution. Unfortunately, um, that is not the news that she is. Uh, that the warden is bringing to her. She has to tell her that it's still going on as scheduled. And Ms. Jimenez breaks down. Um, and then we see Bernadine Williams. She kind of, you know, 
half comforts her, but also maintains this healthy, um, professional distance from her. Yes, yep. Um, because her job is to carry out this execution, um, but do it in um, as respectful a way as possible. Right. Um, and then we go on and, and we, um, we, we see this execution being carried out. It's a lethal injection. Um, we see Victor Jimenez on the, on the uh, table. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, they are having a very difficult time finding a vein in yeah. which to insert the needle for the injection. Um, and it ends up going really bad. Right. They injected both. They tried both arms, foot, then his penis. And then once they were in the penis vein, his veins infiltrated. So blood started to spurt everywhere. Yeah, it, it went bad. And meanwhile, the, you know, there, there's a viewing area. Right. So people are seeing this right. and, you know, and it's very painful. Um, at, and I think they had to close the curtain. Yep, they did. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it got to be too much. Um, and finally, uh, Victor Jimenez, he, he died. Um, I don't know if it's clear that he died of the injection or if he died of bleeding out or possibly both. Um, But yes, it was a very traumatic experience. It was an execution gone wrong. Um, And of course, it made the news. Um, And so after this, um, Warden uh, Bernadine Williams has to kind of endure the fallout of that. Um, yeah. again, we, we can tell that this is a woman who is very, um, very proud of the work that she does and the, you know, the dignity and the respect that she brings to her job. Um, she's overseen several, um, executions and this may have been the worst one. Um, and so, you know, we, we I believe we see her, uh, going out for drinks with one of her co-workers mm-hmm. either later that day or maybe the next day um, just to kind of blow off a little steam. And, and there's some type of indication that they have not only a professional relationship, but possibly a personal relationship, some type of friendship there. Yeah. Um, instead of going straight home, she, you know, decides to go to the bar with him. Um, because you can tell that this is weighing on her. Um, at home, she's not, she has the support of her husband, Jonathan Williams, played by Wendell Pierce, um, who tries to connect with her, but she keeps this wall between the two of them. Mm -hmm. She doesn't quite trust, um, being able to, to open up to him in that way. Um, again, we can see the, the toll that, um, if not this particular incident, Possibly the entirety of her her job, her right, profession, right. probably takes a huge toll on her because we see her having insomnia. She has nightmares. You know, it's very difficult for her to to sleep well at night. Yeah, she doesn't um, even sleep in the same bed as her husband. Um, right, and being intimate with him is hard, and so yeah, it's taking a toll on our family. Mm-hmm. Um. 
you know, whenever, whenever she's out and about, or even at home, you know, you turn the TV on and, and she hears news about, about the, um, the execution, turn on the radio in the car on the way to work. She hears news about the, ex- or debates about the execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, as she comes into work, walks into work, she's passing by protesters, right. Mm-hmm. Um, who are protesting not only that execution, but executions in general, the principle. Um, and so that that's challenging. Um, not only that, she is also in the process of preparing for the next execution, which will be um, Anthony Wood, played by Aldous Hodge. And I think this he, is her 12th one. I yes. think I remember that. Like, this is her 12th execution. Yeah. Um, and so Anthony Wood, um, the choose of killing um, a person, but he has maintained his innocence throughout. Um, we see him with his lawyer, Marty Lametta, and he's, you know, trying to, to get a stay of execution, trying to get um, another trial, you know, just, just continuing to fight for his life, literally. Um, and his uh, lawyer is, you know, he believes him and he's trying his absolute best to do that, but it takes a toll on him as well. And at some point he declares that this is going to be his, his last case. Mm-hmm. Um, he just can't take it anymore. It's, you know, the, the um, legal system is, uh, it's very taxing and, you know, who knows how many people um, have been caught up in it that should not be there. And, and the work that it takes to get them out and um, how many how many people are able to be freed from that versus the people who never get a chance to, to get their freedom um, or, you know, uh, keep their lives. Um, there's a lot of people who have died um, and they were innocent, died in jail, died by the hands of the state. Um, and so that's hard to watch. That's mm-hmm. hard to feel like you're kind of fighting um, or, you know, uh, yeah, just, just fighting a lost cause. Right. Um, but you still have to try. So, again, um, we, we are faced with the two main characters in this film, the warden, Bernadine Williams, and Anthony Woods. Um, and uh, again, Bernadine Williams is uh, trying her best to bring dignity and respect to the work at hand. Um, we see the two characters meet up, um, and it is time to give Anthony Woods his uh, execution date mm-hmm. and tell him what to expect on his, on the day of his execution. Um, and it's a very touching scene uh, where she comes to his cell. She tells him the information, very matter of fact, tells him, you know, you, you are entitled to a guest um, to the witness area or to the viewing area so that you can have somebody there to support you. Um, but you can see that Anthony Woods is just kind of, zoning out he's tuning out because of course you know after all this time of being hopeful and and trying to fight the good fight um 
declaring your innocence, it's got to be very traumatic to hear the day that you're going to die. Right. Um, <clears throat> you going to say something? No, go ahead. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, so he just kind of shuts down. You can see him shutting down. Um, she walks away, and he's just left with this information. And that's when he starts to self-harm. We see him, very painful things, um, knocking his head up against the wall, trying to either knock himself out or kill himself. Um, actually, I'm sorry, we see him um, knocking his head against the wall to kill himself. Yep. Um, uh, he's saved by the prison guards, um, but we see him say something to the effect of, uh, you know, I, I say when I when I die, yes. you don't. Yeah, you don't have that control over me. Um, so yeah, very very painful moment. Um, in the midst of this, we also are again dealing with the aftermath of the execution gone wrong, um, and so Bernadine Williams is having a, a practice run with her team. Um, probably something that they do every time. Um, but this one is especially important to make sure that they get everything right. Um, they have to make sure that, again, these prisoners die with dignity. Um, and in the midst of going through the process, um, one of the prison guards, he does not respond when, you know, when it's time, when he's cued. Um, to do, I forgot what it is that he was supposed to do. He doesn't respond. And, uh, and so we, we realized that he's, he's too traumatized. He was very much affected by what happened there as well, mm-hmm. um, for the, for the botched ex- execution. Um, and so he's dismissed from the team. Yeah. Um, you know, again, we see Bernadine Williams still. You know, holding herself together. She's never letting go. <laughs> yes. Yes. Still trying to maintain this distance. Still trying to um, compartmentalize. Um, still trying to, you know, who knows how much she has endured as a black woman right. in the, you know, in the prison system um, to to go all the way up to the top. She's the one that's in charge. Right. Um, she has to maintain a certain image, um, but also being surrounded by um, all these men of color. All these prisons are just um, overpopulated with with men of color. Mm-hmm. There are many of them are innocent, um, or at least claim to be, and so that's got to be very very difficult yeah. to. Um, to, to deal with day in and day out. Um, we see Anthony Wood's character. Um, he begins to heal. And uh, I think at one time, Marty may, I can't remember if, if Marty Lumetta either left the case or else he said that, you know, this was just going to be his last one. I feel like at some point he detached, but then he came back. Yes, um, yes. He he promised not to leave him. He promised that. So yeah. um, he did stick around. But there are like moments in the film where you see him just exhausted 
from trying and trying and trying the case and mm-hmm. not g- getting a breakthrough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so they have a moment. Um, fast forward to um, a point where Anthony Woods, the character of Anthony Woods, meets with his ex-girlfriend, Yvette, played by Danielle Brooks. Yeah. Um, And and this was quite a powerful scene as well. Yes, it really was. Um, So she comes to just kind of talk to him and and reconnect and just kind of, I guess, talk through some things. Uh, You almost get the sense that this may be the last time that they ever see each other again. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a heavy conversation. but it's a and it's an emotional conversation. Um, I think this is the first time they they talked or the first time she visited since he's been in prison. Yeah. Um, and so he's quite hopeful when he sees her. Um, again, he's you know still trying to hope that he gets a stay of execution, he gets some type of retrial, um, and then to see her again gives him you know just another kernel of hope that perhaps he might be moving forward towards um, a life outside of those prison walls. Right. And, um, and just to like a side note, he had no visitors except for his lawyer because his mom had recently passed. So having her come in as one of his visitors was very meaningful to him. Right. Absolutely. Um. And, you know, while they're talking, she, um, you know, she acknowledges that she was not there for him um, at the time of his arrest. Um, and she expresses some, some level of regret or sadness about that. Um, but, or, or it seems as though she's about to. And before she says anything, he just kind of stopped her and was like, you know, you don't have to apologize. <laughs> and she was like, I was going to. Nope. <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Yeah. And then that's, you know, it, it take, it, it's a slight shift in tone. And she, it's not said in a malicious way, but it's said in a, in a factual way. Right. I'm not sorry. And I'm not sorry that I'm not sorry. Um, you know, I did what I felt like I had to do because, you know, I was pregnant at the time. Um, And so I had to do what was right for my baby. Um, We had to survive. And then she, uh, she then further reveals that she was pregnant by him. The baby is his. Mm -hmm. And so that was quite a, a surprise for him this whole time. He had a child. He had no idea. Yeah. Um, but for her, she felt like, um, you know, they, she, it seemed as though that was her only choice. Either she was going to have to continue to come to the prison, bring her baby to the prison. And, you know, it, it seemed like it was a, um, I don't know, just a hopeless situation. And she felt like she needed to try to provide the best environment, the best emotional environment for her and her baby, which by the way, was not an easy one. It's like choosing, choosing the best of of two evils. 
I guess, for her. Yeah, Danielle um, Brooks did an awesome job on that monologue. Um, I'm always pushing monologues for actresses. So if you see Clemency, go ahead and take a look at that monologue and write it down. Probably use it when you're auditioning. It was powerful and well done. Absolutely. Um, oh, so in the meantime... We meet Mr. and Mrs. Collins. Um, they come to the warden's office um, because they're concerned about uh, Anthony Woods' execution. Again, Anthony Woods was convicted of murdering their son, um, even though Anthony Woods maintains his innocence. Um, now, again, on the outside, there's a lot of protests um, on Anthony Woods' behalf. Um, people are trying to stop the execution. They're concerned because they want justice to be served. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they come to advocate for, for their deceased son. And uh, again, you see Bernadine Williams. It's a very emotional scene, especially with, the, with Mrs. Collins' character. Um, but Bernadine Williams, again, maintains that distance. She, she does not allow herself to, to go there. She lets she lets whoever it is, you know, that she's speaking with have that emotional experience. Um, and she, you know, she, she's there for it. She's present for it, but she does not uh, take that on and she does not participate. Right. No um, right. In the meantime, we, we learned that her husband, Jonathan Williams, is a teacher, a high school teacher. Yeah. Um, and so he's also you know, kind of dealing with um, the question of the um, judicial system as it pertains to, to Black Americans, I think in particular Black men. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we see uh, inklings of, not inklings, we see uh, a bit of his nurturing side, the way that he is with, with those students, teaching the students. Um, we also see uh, Bernadine Williams um, a bit more of her home life. Again, their marriage is strained. Her and Jonathan, um, their marriage is, is becoming more and more strained. Um, he is still trying to be emotionally supportive and sees the toll on her and encourages her to retire. After this, you know, why don't, why don't you retire? I'll leave my job. And, you know, we can, we can start the next chapter of our lives together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so easy for her. No, she's not um, having it. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very hard thing for her to wrap her mind around. Um, and so, again, you know, they're, they're having some, some challenges there. Um, we'll fast forward to the uh, execution day. Uh, we see Anthony Woods. He has a moment with the chaplain. Um, the chaplain prays with him. Uh, it seems as though whatever hope there was for his first day of execution is now gone. Yeah. And he has to prepare for his execution. And that scene, too, very powerful. The way in which um, Anthony Wells crying, you could feel that. Like, I got goosebumps. It was it was chilling. I thought that scene was very good. Very well done. Um, 
And so we see um, Anthony Woods go to um, the execution area and um, everything is by the book. You know, everything goes the way it's supposed to, goes according to brand. Um, we also see Anthony Woods' um, character address. Uh, you know, he gives his final statement, statement um, and he even addresses uh, Mr. and Mrs. Collins um, the execution team, I don't know what the, what the technical term is, um, they, they do their job and it goes according to plan. Um, however, uh, now is when we see Bernadine Williams, the warden, um, she is affected yeah. greatly yeah. by this execution. Now we start to see the emotion uh, coming out. That she held, that she held in um, this entire movie, um, and so you know we we see that this film um, it is about Anthony Woods, and it's about um, you know questions of of uh, uh, the morality or the ethics of um, uh, execution but also what's the emotional toll on those who are, you know, doing the job of the law, the people who are, whose job it is to um, take other people's lives on behalf of the state. Yeah. Now, very interesting um, topic. And, you know, clearly we can see how um, Chinonye Chukwu was affected by um, Troy Davis's death and why she would want to explore this um, through the medium of film. Um, so yeah, that is the overview of the film. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot that we need to talk about uh, with this film. It, it takes on a lot of, not takes on, it um, touches on a lot of different themes here. So we'll get into it. All right. On Young, Black, and Brave, we will feature up-and-coming Black female artists forging through the music game. Every film has a music score, and that music score, too, tells a story. Black women should also be at the center of scoring, directing, acting, writing, shooting, casting, and producing films. So, why not highlight our black queens who are standing on top of their thrones and busting through those glass ceilings? Today's artist is singer-songwriter-producer Mommy, and this is her song, Supermarket Man. I wanna call you, but I can't 
Cause I don't got your number Supermarket man standing by the pants Do you need a hand? Oh, I, 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 I wonder If I knew So I can be closer to you To, to you yeah. Or are you trying to find a new Cause you know I got something you could do Mommy and her hit record, Supermarket Man. 
Let me tell you, that song is a whole vibe, okay? (laughs) Go ahead and follow Mommy on Instagram at m.a.mii underscore underscore. Again, it's m.a.mii underscore underscore. Don't forget the two I's and the two underscores at the end. And her music is streaming on all platforms. So go ahead and take a listen to her collection. All right. So um, now that we've talked a bit about the film, um, let's kind of go over a couple of the broader themes um, that kind of came out in the film. Um, One thing that jumped out for me was uh, this issue of gender. Mm. So although the film's protagonist is a woman, uh, the warden, um, most of the characters are men, which I found very interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and which probably it makes sense because of the setting, talking about a male um, prison. Mm -hmm. Um. But also what what stood out to me was that she was a warden. And my initial um, instinct was to think that she was, uh, you know, operating in a male-dominated, not just a male-dominated space, but in a male-dominated position. I always pictured prison wardens or prison officials in general to be men. Um, But in an interview um, that I heard, Chinonye Chukwu mm-hmm. said that um, she, when she did her research, so again, she was really radicalized by um, Troy Davis's um, execution in 2011, and she decided to do some um, activist work in the prison reform space. Mm-hmm. And she went to Ohio and uh, learned a lot about the prison system to do research. Um, I think this to do work in general, but then to also do some background research for preparation for this film. And what she found was that most of the wardens that she um, came into contact with, at least in Ohio, were actually black women. Oh, wow. Which was shocking to me. And then she went on to say that many wardens in general are women, which is contrary to how they're typically depicted in film and television. Hmm. That's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm really curious about that now. Um, And, you know, I want to do some digging on my my own time Mm -hmm. just to kind of find out why, why is that? Why is it that they, that she sees um, uh, more women than we would think occupying that warden role? What is it about that Mm -hmm. particular position? Um, either that is attractive for women or, you know, or, you know, what is it? What is it about that? I don't know anything about um, the prison system. Yeah. Um, and how does yeah. one get there to be how does a one warden? Get in there? Yeah. What, what makes you want to do that, do that job? Right. What is it about that? Like, you know, or, and, and maybe we got some insight with, um, with the character in this film, because again, she even talks about what drives her and why she still 
um, uh, you know, why she's still trying to hold on to this position is she finds, um, she finds a great responsibility in it. She takes it very seriously and she feels like, um, she's doing her job best when she's giving them dignity. Yeah. And when she's giving these, these, uh, men respect. And I, it's almost as if she feels like if not her, then, you know, who? who? Like she yeah. has an obligation yep, 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 yep. to be here. I, if I'm not here, then there's no telling what could be, what could happen to these men. Um, it's important that I'm here because, you know, I need to make sure that they leave this world with as much dignity intact as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also, you know, in addition to just the, you know, the, the, the tragedy of it all, I think it also sticks with her that this man at the beginning of the film did not have a death that, um, that, uh, he deserved. Right. He deserved at least a respectful death and he didn't even get that. And she felt bad about that and haunted by that. Um, so yeah, I, I found that tidbit really, um, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, that I thought was really interesting was the relationship between uh, Bernadine and Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of made me feel like it was a bit of a flip in their expected gender role. Um, So, you know, Bernadine kind of occupied what's typically more of that male space, that masculine space of being um, stereotypically like emotionally distant and, consumed by their job, defined by their job. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Jonathan was, he was, he was right there offering the emotional support. He was the emotionally strong one in the relationship. Um, you know, he was more nurturing. His occupation was as a teacher. He worked with kids. Um, you know, so he kind of brought that energy into, into their household. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was, that was quite interesting, too. What did you think about the pace of the film? I felt like the film was really slow and um, and it had some, like, dry moments. I was watching the film with my mom. And anybody who hasn't seen it or wants to see it, um, we watched it. We streamed it on Amazon Prime. Um, it just... It just felt like drawn out, you know, at times, like the pace of it was really slow, which could be, you know, um, real time of how a person might feel on death row. Like, you know, no knowing no end, you know, like when is this when is my time coming sort of thing? The anxiousness behind that Um could have been feeding off to in to me as a view as a viewer, but I did feel like it was like slow a lot of the time. I I didn't pick up on that. I didn't feel like it was too slow. I felt like the pacing um, was good for me, and I guess it it kind of reflected the you know just kind of like the um, the emotions that were. Uh, the overarching emotion there, which mm-hmm. was more like that anxiety, which was that, that like, uh, uh, re- reservation kind of like separate, trying to compartmentalize, trying to separate herself 
her different selves. Yeah. Um, and it just felt like, like she presented herself as a very reserved person and it, the film felt very reserved. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, and you can probably speak more to this than I can, but you know, like the, the, the sound, the, the lighting, the setting just felt kind of feral and static and, um, cold in a way. Yeah, it did. Um, it did. And kind of, you know, harsh and tough and, but at the same time, there's some warmth there. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, there, which, you know, kind of represents, there are human beings involved, um, but they're all trying to maintain themselves and manage themselves in a, uh, a very, one could say, inhumane situation. Right. Trying to maintain their humanity in an inhumane um, situation. And, uh, yeah, so it just kind of felt like, it, it It felt like it was somebody just trying to make it through and right. get to the next step. Um, not too fast, not too slow. But, um, you know, I don't know. Um, other thing that I wanted to point out from a gender perspective um, was this also this, and I don't know if you picked up on this, and maybe I'm, I'm digging too, uh, you know, reading too much into it, um, but there was an interesting dynamic, this male-female dynamic, um, specifically with the black female character's relationship to Anthony. Mm. Um so, you know, the women that Anthony comes in contact with are uh, Bernadine, the warden, Yvette, and um, um, indirectly, Mrs. Collins. Um, so with Bernadine, he kind of has, or she has like a, a kind of like respectful and compassionate relationship with him. Um but of course it's very professional and it's distant. Mm-hmm. Um, she has that professional distance with him. And like, there was that interaction um, when she came to his cell to tell him um, the date of his execution and to just start to prepare him on what to expect and what you can request and things like that. Um, and she didn't react when he, you know, he, he again was, starting to break down you saw tears in his eyes but he also was just kind of like still trying to hold on to himself yeah starving Um, himself too because she was proposing um him to him to choose his last meal and he hadn't eaten since mm. he had hit his head up against the wall he had stopped eating since he couldn't you know control his time of death via harming himself in that way he started to protest by not eating. So. And so she, yeah, so she, you know, maintained that, that distance, um, you know, with, uh, with Yvette, again, their interaction where she was, you know, he, he's thinking she's coming there to kind of apologize or express regret. And she was like, nope, <laughs> not, not sorry. Not today. Um, <laughs> not today. I, you know, I, I love you. I hope you know that I love you. You know, I, I believe that you love me and I hope that you know that I love you. Um, I care about you. I care about your well being. but I had to save myself. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know, and and I'm telling you this to your face. Um, not only that, I had to make a decision for myself. I had to make a decision for our son. Right. Um, you know, and then even with Mrs. Collins, and she's just, you know, she she is advocating for his execution, and uh, in her eyes, this is justice. I want to see justice, and I'm going to sit here in the front row um, to make sure that the person that I believe killed my child um, is put to death. And uh, and I just I it felt very powerful to me because these are three black women who possibly in someone else's hands, they would have been, uh, they would have had very different reactions with him. Mm. I feel like in someone else's hands, one of those characters would have broken down and, you know, probably would have tried to do something to save his life, to to make him feel better, to, to change something. Um, and to put his needs or his desires first. Mm-hmm. But every time these black women chose themselves, chose to protect themselves, um, you know, before him. So, it, you know, they would have, I feel like in somebody else's hands, these black women would have been written in a more sacrificial way. Right. Um, but instead they were, they were, they were written in a way that was more, um, self-preserving and it wasn't in a malicious way it wasn't in an evil way or a nasty way but it was just it was a very respectful dignified I choose me mm-hmm. and I thought that was really powerful um, you know because it forced him it, you know again maybe I'm reading too much into it but I it it, it uh, kind of forced him to save himself emotionally Mm. a lot of times you see especially with black men and black women black women are expected to be that emotional support to save black men emotionally um and a lot of times we talk about you know the ways in which women may be dependent on men financially or physically but we don't talk about the ways in which men are dependent on women emotionally um and so, yeah, I thought it was really fascinating how none of these women offered him emotional lifelines like that. When push came to shove, he had to do that himself. Yeah. Yep. Or he had to find that emotional lifeline with his, you know, male relationship, you know, with the chaplain, with his lawyer. But it wasn't going to come from his ex-girlfriend or from the warden. Oh, true, Portia. Oh, true. I don't think I necessarily, um, and this might be a, um, it it could it could be a discrepancy on how the film was made, um, and the dialogue. But I I didn't really get from Mrs. Collins that she wanted him to be executed. I I didn't really get that. I didn't, so I guess it, I didn't pick up on like a, you know, this needs to happen. Like she was, you know, like, yeah, like, I don't think that she was happy about it, mm-hmm. but I think that she was just, she, I, it, I got the vibe that she was just like, you know, it's, it's, 
what need what what it needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, and this is something that has to be done, and I'm just you know, I'm just here. But she was um, she was affected when he gave his last um, you know words. He addressed um, he addressed the parents, Mister and Missus Collins, and you know you could assume that he was looking at her. Um, and she, she was emotionally reactive. She, she cried and, um, you know, you can only imagine what those tears were about. Um, but I like to think that she felt some type of, uh, empathy for him, at least in that moment. Um, yeah, she feels, you know, for her son, but, you know, this is somebody else's son too that's about to die. Yeah. She's about to see it with her own eyes, and this is, you know, this is not a good situation on any, you know, on any side. Right. Especially when when this is a young man that that continues to say that he is innocent. At some point, there has to be, if not for just a fleeting moment, wondering if he's telling the truth. Yeah, and I think that that's what um, prompted a lot of internal struggle with Bernadine because I think she believed he was innocent as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you have to you have to wonder. Yeah, especially when when he at the very least you have to wonder if he believes he's innocent, right? Um, you know, which which is another you know, way to even look at it and, uh, you know, another opportunity for some type of compassion. Um, but yeah, it, I thought it was a very complex, uh, kind of story and complex, complex characters. You know, again, this was about the prison system. Um, and, you know, more specifically the death penalty and as, as we said um, several times now, this film was inspired by Troy Davis. Um, and uh, he, he maintained his innocence all the way until his death. And actually, I looked up um, while I was doing some research, background research on Troy Davis. Um, I read what was uh, published as his final words and realized that... Um, the dialogue that was written for Anthony, the Uh character of Anthony was almost word for word, the same final words of Troy Davis. Yeah. Which was, uh, quite, um, when there's a word for it, I don't know. It just, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. It was quite powerful to see that. It was a is a video too. I had I looked it up. It's a video. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, they took a video of him. What I was watching was more of his his voice. You can hear his voice. So I don't know oh, how like they yeah like an audio yeah. Oh uh, okay. But on yeah. video and they put like um his words up typed on the video. So in order to get that audio, someone had to be recording, you know, there in the um, execution room. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I could, I could, uh, I could definitely believe somebody 
brought in a little tape recorder, um, which makes sense because, I mean, it wasn't like he had a long speech, but that would be a lot to, for somebody to try to write down and get it correct. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought that was a very interesting choice, interesting choice um, uh, that the director and writer um, took. Um, but the other thing that was fascinating, again, um, Chinonye uh, Chukwu uh, wanted to focus on the emotion around it. So not just the, the actual, um, you know, act of execution, but what's the toll, what's the cost um, emotionally of these executions. And, um, you know, and we were able to explore that from several different sides, you know, from the, from the prisoner perspective, um, uh, you know, which is obvious, but also, you know, we see that reflected in Anthony's suicide attempt Mm -hmm. after he's, you know, finds out his execution date. And, you know, again, when the guards come and, and, uh, save him or restrain him and he's just like, you know, I, I decide, yeah, I decide when I die, not you. Yeah. Um, and then the, the toll that it takes on the family, um, at the beginning, again, when we see the execution gone wrong, we actually, um, before that we see the mother, she's in a, the mother of the inmate, she's in a side room before it starts. And, you know, she sees the warden and she's, you can tell that she is just hoping and praying that she gets the, the miracle that she's been waiting on this whole time is that there's been a stay of execution. Yes. So just so everybody knows, we're talking about Miss um, Jimenez. That was the first execution that we see on the screen before Anthony's execu- execution. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. And so, you know, she sees the warden and the warden's like, you know, I'm sorry. And she just kind of breaks down. She collapses in, you know, in her arms and in, in Bernadine's arms. And then she's, you know, again, very um, respectful, respectfully distant. Right. And she's just like, you know, have a seat. I'll come back. You know, if there's something to, to say, I'll come back and I'll, I'll say something. But, you know, just hang tight and we'll come and get you. Right. And she lets her just kind of sit with her with her feelings as she goes on about the rest of her duty. Um, and then you also see from the other perspective with the parents, again, um, there to witness um, Anthony's. Um, execution and you know again they're not coming there extra happy they're not hyped to be there mm-hmm. it's, it's a very very sad day all around and I'm sure that they have you know conflicting emotions wanting to see justice um, but then also uh, possibly feeling guilt as well knowing that they're about to take this man away from his family from the people that he cares about Right. Um, I don't, you know, who knows if they know that he is a father, but, you know, you can just imagine, um, you know, what that might be like. Uh, and then, again, <coughs> we see from the law enforcement officials' perspective um, where that one officer was traumatized seeing the botched execution 
at the beginning and being unable to later participate in Anthony's execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, throughout the film, we see uh, Bernadine's, um, uh, you know, the toll that it, the toll that all these years of overseeing executions take on her with her being emotionally distant um, in order to maintain her professional image. Um, but then you see when she comes home, you can see the insomnia, you can see the strain on her marriage, you can see her, uh, you know, breakdown kind of in private within the confines of her home. She can't, she can't control that. She can't control what happens when she's asleep and, and awoken by nightmares. Um, and then finally she breaks down during Anthony's execution at the end. Um, and then you also get some insight into, uh, the toll that it takes on the public as well, you know, with the protesters outside of the prison every day, um, demanding answers as to what happened, uh, with the first execution. Um, and, uh, you know, even with the news constantly covering, um, these executions and uh, just kind of being out there in the ether. It's, uh, it's, it's I, I thought it was really um, effective and, and really good to just have a film where you you take the time to, to focus on that emotional cost. Mm-hmm. And again, in somebody else's hands, I'm not so sure that they would have been willing or brave enough to spend two hours on talking, you know, kind of meditating on emotion. Right. Right. It might've been something else. It might've been focused on, and, and not to say that um, other things aren't important, but it might've been focused on, you know, the legal uh, aspect, or it might've been focused on the financial aspect or whatever. But I, I appreciate that we were able to, to, uh, kind of see this prison drama through a different lens. Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of alluded to the idea of, uh, you know, certain, certain decisions that were made, um, certain uh, writing or or directing choices that were made Mm -hmm. that may seem a bit unique. I, you know, I kind of voiced some of my opinions on what I think might have happened in different hands. I think it's, I think it's, uh, uh, I think it's, um, what's the word, you know, important that, um, this director in particular made this film the way that she did. Mm -hmm. And had it been in somebody else's hands, it would have come out way different, uh, possibly to its detriment. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I, (laughs) I I mean, we're doing this podcast uplifting um, black female actors and directors and writers. Mm -hmm. And I just have an affinity towards films that are written and directed by black women. And in in this film and in others, it's just a um, a meticulous care, I feel like, um, in everything that is done when it's at the hands of a a black woman in telling retelling our stories um the characters 
even though, you know, we could feel the coldness of Bernadine's spirit mm-hmm. and like um, the coldness of the prison and, you know, um, the even though lighting was down, you know, trodden a lot of times, but the lighting, the actors, the black actors were well lit. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the adjusting of color temperatures to mimic emotion and um, the diffusing of light, like all of that matters in film, you know, there's things that we don't really um, focus on a lot of times, but you could tell every beat and every moment and every lighting and even the soundscape at the end when Bernadine is struggling with her inner self, um, was at the hands of Chinonye and I just I I have to celebrate that I I thought you know even though I felt like it was it you know there were moments of that were really slow um that I said earlier I couldn't take my eyes off of the screen um and what she captured in that moment, and I think she did Troy Davis. Um, uh, a, she did a wonderful job of lifting his story um, and retelling his story, and speaking to what's happening in the prison industrial system. So, and I, yeah. I feel I feel that way a lot about you know the other films we've covered, like um, the photograph also visually stunning you know um women in general have a way um with retelling stories that is exciting and new and fresh and you can tell very meticulous down to the from the beginning to the end and that's not to take away from what men are doing in cinema but you can really tell when a woman has put her hands on a body of work, it it it's it leaves you it leaves you feeling refreshed and ready for the next um, film. Which is why, not even knowing she was doing a film about Elaine Brown, I was ready to go look up her previous work. So mm-hmm. um, I'm excited to see what her career brings forth. Um, you know, just to piggyback off of what you just said, um, the films that we have reviewed so far directed by black women are Queen and Slim, Harriet, The Photograph, Mm -hmm. and now Clemency. And you're absolutely right. They, uh, you can tell, you can tell, um, when a woman has, uh, you know, kind of been at the helm when when this is a, a story that's told through um, through a woman's eyes through her her direction. Yeah, um, there's certain things that are emphasized. There's certain things that are uh, that are brought to the fore. Um, there's certain things that we pay attention to um, that tend to be overlooked um, by other people. So it's it's you know again that much more important that we have 
everyone having a seat at the table, everyone having that opportunity um, to use their talent um, to tell stories because the, the number of stories that we are missing because we're not giving people the opportunity to tell them. It's, right. it's, it's wild. And then imagine the ways in which we, we influence each other, the cyclical ways in which we are influenced by things and then we in turn influence those things right back and without having these different inputs to kind of, uh, you know, help move along culture and help move along ideas because we're only getting, you know, the same input from certain people. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, this director's next work and I'm looking forward to more black women um, getting more opportunities to be at the helm of, of films, we need it. Yeah, I read an article um, about her, her practices on set as far as knowing that this was heavy content and making sure there were moments of joy on set and mm-hmm. um, checking in with her actors and even her crew um, because this is... I can imagine um, shooting this had to be tough on everyone um, because, you know, you're you're watching in real time something that is scripted, but is very much real and happening in the world. So. Absolutely. That sounds like um, Ava DuVernay when when she talked about her set uh, uh, when they see us. it was very, very heavy material, again, like you said, and she made sure not only to, um, you know, have uplifting moments on set, but to also give them access to um, support. Right. To mental health services. Right. Um, which some of them said that they, you know, they took advantage of mm-hmm. because it was difficult and they were really appreciative that they were working with somebody that got it. Yeah. Being a director and a writer is very hard because you have to you have all of these pieces to manipulate but you need to make sure everyone is taken care of at the same time as as well as yourself but you're also doing justice to the story that you're bringing forth so that's that's a hard very hard job and so when you hear about um directors like Ava and Chenonier like making sure that their set is well, the people on their set is, they are well taken care of. I haven't, I always hear great stories and read great stories about um, how Ava runs her, her crew and her set. And Mm -hmm. that, that is a lot of work, especially on these full length films, these features, like it's a lot of work. And so she should be commended. They all should be. All right. Well, that is clemency. I think it's time for us to run the test. All right. Let's Let's run it. All right. So step one on the Dorsey Flowers test. The Dorsey Flowers test. (laughs) Let's (laughs) do it. Okay, regardless of age, sexual orientation, trans identity, disability, religion, ethnicity, whether in live action or animated films, we are looking for characters who count as both black and female. Mm. 
So these are uh, characters who identify or are identified as female human beings and as black human beings and are not portrayed by non-black and or non-female actors. So Medea doesn't count. <laughs> no. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, yes, we do. We do have female characters who fit this criteria. Yeah, we have black and female. Okay, now step two. And it's a multi-step process. All right. First step. Are there at least two named black female characters in this film? Yes. We have three. We have Bernadine, the warden. We mm-hmm. have Yvette, the ex-girlfriend. And we have Mrs. Collins. Yep. Do they talk to each other? Ooh. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, they do. Bernadine and Mrs. Collins. Yep, they do talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Do they talk to each other about something other than a male or non-black female character? So, uh... They're talking about Anthony. Um, yeah, that would be a no. Yeah. I have to say, I wanted Bernadine to have a friend that wasn't, because she seemed to be going out with her coworker, her white male coworker to the bar. But I wanted her to have a black female friend. She needed a black female friend, just one, yeah. because she was struggling internally and she needed she needed someone to talk to so I was I was almost hoping like um she would have a stronger relationship with um Sonia played by Michelle Bonilla I I was hoping that you know it seemed like they were toiling with that a little bit but it never you know matriculated into anything more than just like co-worker uh you know talking but I, I wanted her to have a black female friend so badly wow yeah you know I, and I wonder I guess you know could just speculate but um I'm sure some of that was just a, a, um, a function of her environment mm-hmm. so if she's surrounded by these white men and if she's been at her job and is good at her job she probably will develop these professional relationships that turn into friendships she feels comfortable enough to go you know hang out with them at the bar after work um but also i wonder if as a character she was you know maybe she just kind of felt safer um nurturing those male relationships, knowing that it would not cross over into possibly those emotional spaces that she didn't want to go into. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, 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 I don't know. I'm Maybe that's me being a girl's girl. I feel more comfortable around women. Yeah. So, you know, I feel comfortable having those emotional exchanges. Um, and, I, you know, so maybe... Maybe she probably knew on some level, like, if I get too close to a woman, if I develop the female friendship that I probably really need right now, I'm, I'm going to be broken. Right, right. So let me That's just, really you sad. know, let me just stay, 
<laughs> we yeah. stay right here on this edge so that I can function. Cause Sometimes we need to be broken. Like that's, yeah. that's a need. And I think she needed that desperately. Yeah. Yeah. I think she probably, if we were to extend the film past that last scene, we might be seeing a Bernadine that would probably, you know, start veering towards that, uh, you know, that emotional healing. Right. In all the various ways that she could get it. Right. Yeah. I think she realized she needs a friend. (laughs) (laughs) At the very least. Yeah. Okay, uh, moving on uh, to character. Is a black female character primary in this story? Yes. Alfred Wooder, Bernadine. Uh, does a black female character have the ability to make her own choices? Yes. Yes. Uh, does a black female character live until the end of the film? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Are the black female characters non-stereotypical? I'd say yes. Yeah. I would say so, yes. It's not often we are going to, we already talked about it. We don't, we rarely, if ever, have seen a black female warden. Um, and then, you know, she just operated her prison by the book, she followed the rules. It was no bending the rules. Um, she wasn't stere- stereotypical at all, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, does a black female character have historical, political, or social relevance? All of the above, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, the fact that this is a black woman as a warden. Uh, which is hardly ever depicted in media. Um, when, when you think about, as, as in many occupations, when you think about a warden, the first uh, image that pops in your mind isn't a black woman. No. It's usually a, a white man. Yeah. Um, and so to see how this black woman is uh, doing her job, doing her difficult job, um, you know, and and mind you, doing this job in a prison that is probably full of black men. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think that I don't know if there's any mention of her having any kids. No, I don't um, think they did. I really don't. Yeah, I don't think they had any kids. No. So, you know, so I can only and she's a woman of a certain age. I don't think we got her age either, but I'm just going to assume that. She's probably somewhere in her 40s or 50s mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I can imagine, especially as she got older, um, seeing these men come in probably in their 20s or 30s and imagining these these guys could be her sons. They, they right. you know, they could have been the same age as a child that she would have had right. um, if she had kids. And so I can only imagine that toll that it took on her too to see so many black men come up in her prison um and you know who knows how many black men's deaths she had to oversee Mm -hmm. which is which is a wild thought yeah she kept saying 12 12 was the number that she had seen 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, to see that, to see a black woman in that position and not, and not to, and she's, she's a part of the system. She's not there to necessarily change the system. Right. She's not there to advocate on their behalf or anything. She's there. I mean, if you want to call it advocacy, she, again, is there to make sure that they get a dignified death. Yeah. Yep, yep. And in order to do that, she's going to, you know, play it by the book. She's going to do everything. She's going to dot her eyes, cross her T's. She's not going to get emotionally involved when they have an emotional outburst. When they plead, she's going to stay distant. I'll make sure that they call the death. That's it. I'm walking out. And I save my feelings for the nightmare that I have tonight. Right. And why? Because of the historical and social um, consequences for women of color being emotional at, in the workplace. Right. That's why. <laughs> right. All right. So let's add all of this okay. up. Oh, is there an extra point because um, oh. Chinonye was a, yeah. was a black woman? director and writer we get one point each but we got two extra points there i'm glad you mentioned that all right so now let's tally it up okay so we have a score of seven plus two bonus points we got a a score of nine yes and more than passes yes Congratulations, cast and crew of Clemency. Well deserved. It's one of our highest ranking films so far. Yes. We have a 10 from Harriet. We got a 9 from Photograph. And now we have another 9 from Clemency. So That's amazing. Yeah. It yeah. goes to show you that these nominations... For the NAACP awards are spot on. So again, we say we gotta support our own. Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting when we look through. I mean, some of these films didn't rank so high, um, but some did, and and that's fine um, to see that variety. But I think it's really important that we interrogate. Um, the films that are being, um, you know, placed as the best of us, the best of black people or the best of black cinema. Right. Um, we need to make sure and, and hope them accountable in some way and say, well, wh- wh- where are the black women? How are black women represented here? Right. Are we represented in a way that feels truthful um, and that feels fair and honest. Um, so, yeah, so... You know, hopefully in the future when, you know, as we continue to determine uh, the next several films that we'll be watching and and especially the films that we can catch streaming since, you know, we are under this uh, age of corona and and in quarantine, we got to watch stuff that we can watch online or on TV. Um, But, you know, I'm definitely interested in us looking more at the female-centric, quote-unquote, female-centric movies and really trying to um, interrogate that space as well. 
Yes. You want to tell me that these are some good movies that represent women? All right, well, where's the black women? <laughs> Let's That's see about right. that. <laughs> we would love to hear your opinion and add your voice to the conversation. If you're interested, send us an email with your thoughts to youngblackandbrave at gmail.com. Also, follow us on social media at Young Black and Brave on Instagram and Facebook and YBB Podcast on Twitter. Anything else you want to add, Portia? No, just stay safe out there. We hope that um, our shows are able to bring you some type of comfort and distraction. And hopefully we were able to bring a little bit of a smile to your face and, and most importantly, encourage you to, um, you know, watch these films. If you're looking for something to add to your watch list, go ahead and look at these films that we're reviewing and, uh, you know, and, and let us know what you think. Give us, give us your comments and, uh, give us some suggestions on some movies that you think we should, uh, review. Right. Yes. We would love to get your input on that. It's so much to critique Mm -hmm. and to watch and we are down to do that. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, oh, Portia, I meant to tell you. So, for our listeners, Portia had posted on her social media page different ways to make s'mores. <laughs> it was a video. <laughs> and so, my goddaughter, I showed it to her, and she made an Oreo cookie s'more. The other day, and they were really tasty. So, if you want a quarantine snack, I would just Google um, different ways, unique ways to make s'mores, and if you like them, because it was a really yummy treat, unexpected treat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that video. That was that was good and. I didn't have any of those ingredients in my house. I think I posted that after I went to the grocery store. I was kicking myself like, oh, man. Now I'm in the mood for s'mores and I can't make them. Right. Oh, man. Well, uh, yes. It's it's nothing like a good quarantine snack. So if you guys have, you know, some unique snacks out there, email us to let us know. We'll probably give it a try when we're watching these films. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you next week. In the meantime, stay brave. Peace.